This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. If we make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance. And the next. On and on until we win, or the chances are spent. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. Finally, yes, we are starting movies again. Yay! Uh, I'm, I'm kind of having to say that to myself just as much as the audience. It feels surreal almost. I don't know how to do this. I don't feel like I can watch other movies now without feeling guilty that I'm not watching The Clone Wars and Rebels, which is what my life has been like whenever I try to watch something else for the last... Oh gosh, two or three months. Yeah, it's it's been ridiculous. It does feel like I just have huge amounts of free time opened up, which I haven't really made great use of. But hey, I can at least sit down and do nothing without the feeling of guilt hanging over me. Uh, just by way of introduction, I am James Hamrick, and with <laughs> me is my co-host Gabe Green. Oh yeah, just to make sure us. I don't forget that. Um, so we are working our way through the Star Wars saga, and we are getting close to an end now. Just a couple more movies. So yeah, we just finished up Rebels, and now we are doing Rogue One, which are very weird but perfect bedfellows, and just the, the entire birth of the Rebellion, despite one being much, much more grim than the other. But before we begin our discussion on that, I would like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes, and then like us on Facebook, and we would really appreciate that. And before we begin the main topic, uh, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this film got to the uh, the big screen? Yeah, so during the mid-2000s, I think this is a bit after Revenge of the Sith had ended, and Lucas was kind of weighing his options about where he wanted to take the series. Um, you know, now that he had his six-movie epic told, um, he originally had an idea to do a live-action TV series. And I think uh, it's reported that there's, like, scripts for, like, 60 episodes out there somewhere in the ether. I, I wonder how many of those became Clone Wars and Rebels. Because I mean, I imagine that, uh, you know, Lucas had to have all of those ideas rattling around in his head. And since, you know, 90% of the Clone Wars originated from him, like the Clone Wars TV show, a lot of the ideas started with an idea from him. I wonder how many of those he got out of his system. Yeah, I wonder. I think, I think they'd have to be very just like general concepts because I think um, what he was originally going for was a, a very um, kind of bounty completely bounty hunter focused series so maybe you know some of the some of the ideas he had uh came up in some of the you know boba fett stories or uh or uh cad bane even but i know that the, he did have a very particular um idea in mind because visual effects supervisor and chief creative officer at ilm john knoll began developing an idea to pitch to lucas once he found out that lucas was developing a series However, Noel had to shelf the idea once he was told that it wasn't going to fit within the concept of the show that he was creating. Um, and then, of course, we fast forward a, a decade to the Disney acquisition. Um, and Noel, still working at ILM, was kind of not pressured, but encouraged by his uh, his peers to pitch, pitch the idea to the new creative heads. Um, so he approached Pablo Hidalgo, uh, a member, probably the most prominent member of uh, the Lucasfilm story team, uh, he approached him, and he and he liked it a lot. So he brought it to the attention of Lucasfilm President Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm Vice President uh, President Kiri Hart. Um, and the idea was met with complete enthusiasm. 
And Kennedy actually said she was so impressed by the idea that they decided to fast track it to be the very first standalone film in the Disney era. She said a lot of that was because of the uh, the fact that a lot of you know the plot points in the era is something very familiar uh, to modern audiences, and it'd be a great way to start off this new era. Um, so the first writer on the project was Gary Whitta, um, who wrote several episodes in season three of, the, of Rebels. And I'm not sure if this was before or after he was writing for Rebels. In March of 2015, Chris Weitz took over as screenwriter on the project. Uh, he had just written a script for the uh, for Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella remake for Disney. And supposedly over the course of of refining the script, multiple writers were brought, uncredited were brought on, including Christopher McQuarrie, who supposedly did some work on it. Uh, so when it came to casting, the role of Jen Erso went to British actress Felicity Jones, who is probably most well-known to uh, nerds as that girl who'd never end up getting to play Black Cat in The Amazing Spider-Man 3, despite being teased in the second two. one. Amazing Spider-Man 2, but... Uh... No, yeah, she was, she was in 2, oh, and okay. she was meant to play... They were teasing her, setting her up for... The trilogy ender that never came. <laughs> there were a lot of teases in that movie. Yes, quite. A, I think half the movie was that. Diego Luna was cast as Captain Cassian Andor. Director Gareth Edwards, in an interview, said Lucas or Luna possessed an inherently likable and everyman quality about him. Something he was intentional in capturing. He didn't want the uh, the captain here to look like the same dark and brooding hero that we see in so many of, you know, what he described as the typical Hollywood kind of movies. Yeah, you got to get someone who can shoot an innocent man in the back and you can, you'll can you still feel for him. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah I, I see his predicament. Famous Hong Kong actor Donnie Yen was offered the role of Chirrut Inway but nearly turned it down due to how long it would have taken him from his family. Uh, he's quoted as saying, It's crazy, but I was hesitant about taking the role. I was flattered, but at the same time, I didn't want to leave my family for five months to go to London because I just got off another movie. I turned to my children and I said, Do you like Baba's <laughs> Ip Man series? Because I'm known to Western audiences for Ip Man. Or do you want Baba to be in Star Wars? They want Star Wars, of course. And he said that's when I realized there was something special here. So many of these Star Wars actors talk about how it was their kids that ultimately decided for them. That's, that's kind of cute. I mean, I'm a grown adult, and if a family member of mine had the option, I'd be like, you better do this or I will flip out. I don't, I don't want to see you for the next six months. Go away. Exactly. It's a win-win. Although probably not in the case for Donnie Yen. He seems like a really cool guy. <laughs> and for the role of Bodhi Rook, uh, a story group member recommended Riz Ahmed after being impressed by him in the film Nightcrawler, which he is excellent in, and it's an excellent movie. Uh, Riz, there's a funny story. Riz sent in numerous audition tapes he recorded himself, just trying to show the range of ways he could play the character. He had some where he just had like he had no shirt and just a a vest on <laughs> with like a bandana tied around his head, and all of these crazy different things. And apparently, he he got the role. But he he was accepted the role via email, and he said, "Well, now that I've got uh, Edward's email, I'm just going to keep sending him more." And so, even after being cast in the role, he sent numerous additional tapes <laughs> afterwards just to make sure he got it. For the villain, uh, actor Ben Mendelsohn was cast as Orson Krennic. In my opinion, the uh, my favorite character in in this film by far. Um, and for the rest of the cast, Mads Mikkelsen was cast as Galen Erso, father of Jin. Uh, Alan Tudyk came in to uh, be the second robot of his career with K2SO. Jane Wynn was cast as Baze Malbus. Uh, 
he is also a, a, a more famous Hong Kong actor. He's a direct, he's a director too, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's directed several films. And Forrest Whitaker was finally able to chronologically li- debut as a live-action Saw Gerrera, um, who I believe is the very first character to have originated in a series and appear in live-action. And then outside of that, there's a lot of other cool little cameos, such as Jimmy Schmitz, Genevieve O'Reilly, and Anthony Daniels appearing, um, with James Earl Jones obviously reprising Darth Vader. Warwick Davis. Warwick Davis. And then, of course, we had CGI Tarkin and CGI Leia, performed by Guy Henry and Ingvil Dela, with the likenesses of the actual actors being superimposed. Guy or Guy Henry actually voiced Tarkin, but for Leia, they just used um, archive audio. Really, um, I could have seen them do, using us uh, reusing Stephen Stanton as well from the. Uh... I, th- I kind of almost wish they did because I, I think that his, did, th- I think Guy Henry did a very great job, but man, to me, uh, Stanton is almost a, a perfect match for for his vocal qualities. Though Stephen Stanton did end up. Appearing, he uh, he voiced Admiral Raddus, who, for my money, is the coolest um, Mon Calamari of the series. But he doesn't talk about traps, so no can do. He doesn't, but the Raddus maneuver is cooler than anything. <laughs> and then the last two cameos that I want to bring up, which I just think are awesome, is Angus McInnes and Drew Henley are featured as Gold Leader Dutch Vander and Red Leader Garvandreas using unused footage from A New Hope. Uh, and McInnes actually returned to record some new dialogue for Vander. Oh, really? Yeah, which I think okay. is really, really cool. However, uh, Henley was already deceased, so they were able to assemble archive material for him. And it's really cool. You know, seeing him, first of all, is just awesome. And you can kind of tell the the picture quality, it's different. The color correction is still excellent. Yeah, like, If I mean, you did not know, you would never find out by looking at it. Yeah. Just knowing what the original dialogue is, you know, when he says, you know, I see an opening or watch out for those towers, you know, and like knowing the original context, it's it's just super cool. But the way they're able to fold them in here is it's pretty awesome. So uh, a pretty stacked cast with a lot of cool cameos. Yeah. Um. So the uh, filming began in August 8th of 2015. The majority was shot on the Elstree Studios where, uh, where many of the Star Wars films have been filmed and Pinewood Studios in England. Locations in Iceland were used for Lamu and Idu. And then Jordan was used for Jeddah and Lamu Atoll in the Maldives was used for Scarif. After a few months in editing, Edward's director's cut just wasn't coming together. Uh, so they brought on writer-director Tony Gilroy to write and oversee reshoots for the film's climax. It's not exactly known how much control he had over the final film. Some people say he was actually the director. However, I I feel that the, the visual direction in this film is so consistent that... It seems that Edwards still had control like over the camera. Uh, it was just Gilroy was the one shaping the story. Cause, and Because I know for a fact, listening to interviews with Edwards, he was on set shooting like scenes that were like, like, like Vader scene. I heard an interview where he was talking about how he shot Vader scene. And that was, that was definitely a reshoot. So I'm assuming he was the one you know, doing most of the camera work, whereas Gilroy was just kind of controlling the story. And that in itself is a is a very interesting story, you know, because it, it's usually when you bring in outside people to to reshape something, it it seems like, or maybe this is just the story we're always told because it gets more clicks. But it seems like there's a lot of tension there. Where in this, it does kind of seem like Edwards was 
you know, kind of hopped aboard and and continued without any sort of real fuss happening. Yeah, because I mean, he's he hasn't, I, as far as I know, talked about this at all. He's he's really played ball, and just as far as for anything, I just respect him for for, for the class he had, and you know, not making a scene. Because I guess he knew that the way he had it just wasn't working. And, and I agree with you as well. Just seeing the film, I, I, there's no moments where it feels like visually jarring. And, and I just think, you know, when the film gets big or even in its smaller moments, just looking at his previous filmography, especially with something like Godzilla, it definitely feels grand. And like the scale, the, the way it's, it's shot and the way he maneuvers the camera, it there's very like that real gritty, tangible feeling to it all. And as far as the amount of material that Gilroy brought to the uh, to the film, that's also not known. He's been very quiet about it. There's only one interview, as far as I know, where he talked about this. And there was a, a really fascinating quote that stuck out to me uh, from the interview where he said, I came on after they had a director's cut and I have a writing credit that was easily earned. Which is just crazy. I, th- I believe you have to write roughly a third of the film if I'm not mistaken to get a writing credit so the fact that they had a complete director's cut from you know shot edited and he came on and still got a writing credit is just mind-boggling so obviously he did a lot and from what I could tell from the conversation it seemed that the film just didn't have a central theme or kind of just idea bringing it all together it just felt kind of aimless and Whatever he did, he did an amazing job because by the end of this film, and the fact that the majority of the reshoots were in the climax and that's where the film really comes together, it just says a lot about the skill that he brought to, um, to you know, finding the heart of this film and then showing it on the screen. Um, so the film was originally going to be scored by Alexander Desplat, who had just uh, scored Edward's previous film, Godzilla, but due to the reshoots, his schedule simply didn't allow for it. So they had to bring on Disney favorite Michael Giacchino to... Uh, scraped together a score in a ridiculously short four and a half weeks. Um, he would be the first composer on a Star Wars film not named John Williams. I'm very conflicted here because I think Desplat's score for Godzilla is very underrated. Uh, that, it's excellent. The yeah. main, that main theme is just superb. Uh, however, you know, just first of all, Giacchino, I'm just a major fan of Giacchino. Uh, what he was able to craft in this short amount of time is kind of mind-boggling to me because I find myself like whistling the the newly introduced themes here all the time. I think the Imperial Suite and Krennic's theme is amazing. Everything on Jeddah, especially the flight in and the overture, like there's a lot of good stuff here that he came up with pretty much on the fly. So yeah, this is obviously a fairly recent film. Uh, but how do you? Obviously, you probably remember your first viewing, but what was? What did you think of it then, and how has your relationship with it uh, grown and evolved since then? Uh, so I, I watched it, and I walked out of the theater absolutely in love with it. We actually recorded, if you want to hear my very initial thoughts, we recorded a, a mini-sode back when we were underrated, and I just, I really, really enjoyed it. My relationship has been strange with it over the last couple of years, because um, it, and we'll talk about this when we talk about its legacy, but it has very much been accepted among what seems to be even the most hardcore Star Wars purists. Uh, And I've actually seen it referred to as the only acceptable Disney era Star Wars film. Um, And as a, as a big fan of episode seven and now episode eight, I think my relationship with it started to get a little jaded where uh, before I knew it, because the conversations I was having about it were almost entirely within the context of this is good. Force Awakens is bad. I, I was always on attack mode with this movie and on defense with The Force Awakens. I do remember this. Because I 
I do very much prefer The Force Awakens to this, despite loving both. And so there was a, a very long period of time uh, where it did seem like because the conversations I was having with with the movie were always kind of within that context, um, I was enjoying it less. Uh, I, I rewatched it a couple of times during that period, and and I feel like I was almost watching it for the sake of criticizing it. <laughs> I go back and forth about which I prefer, this or Solo. I've all, I think I've I've kind of moved past that era. Uh, of my relationship with this film and especially after having rewatched it for this episode and hot off the heels of Rebels I'm kind of back to where it's like yes I love it I disagree with you know a good portion of fans over where it truly stands in rankings but I I really do love the movie yeah I started off in a similar place I I don't think I ever really swung into the disliking however you know I also was like yeah you're you're crazy Force Awakens is so much better in every way but yeah this is still this this film did strike a chord when I first watched it. I, I wept in the theater on like my second, second and third viewings. I ha- I haven't actually seen it in the theater since the three times I saw it originally. So I was kind of wondering if it held up. And honestly, I think I liked it the most of any time on this last viewing. I think I've whether or not I, I, I this is an entirely valid. View. I, I feel like I found a lens to with which to view the film where, despite the first acts, um. Uh, sloppiness i feel like by the time the third act comes around the film finds a groove that just builds and builds and builds until the into the insane amazing climax that is honestly like some of the greatest not not just star wars but just it stands for me it stands among just like the greatest of war films like no greatest war film not even moments because it's like a whole 45 minutes but just like it encapsulates everything i love from a good war film and We'll get into that later, but yeah, so it's it. I liked it a lot, had some issues with it, and I think that's grown. I still have a lot of issues with it, but I think it's one of those films where it's 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 an odd movie because it has so many like objective flaws. Like you point to this and this is a big problem that you know it would it would probably ground another film that didn't have such a like a transcendent ending. It's really fascinating just because of how flawed it is at first to how absolutely incredible it is at the end. Like you don't see a lot of movies like that. Yeah, so since we kind of already talked about a lot of the basics, um, one of the things that I want to talk about within the context of going through Star Wars now uh, is how much I enjoy uh, the way this enriches the series, especially where we're at chronologically, you know, having, I, I tried to put myself in the mindset of, you know, I've never seen this movie before and I'm coming off of Rebels, you know, so, and in a lot of ways that actually really helped me with the first act, uh, you know, contained to just a movie by itself, the first act is problematic. But I, if you look at it almost as just a, a transition period from the ending of uh, of Rogue One or of of, uh, of Rebel season four with the last portion of of Saul's arc, um, it's kind of like a, a that transition period from that into this new uh, story focused very squarely on the Death Star. Um, and I remember thinking that. You know, by the by the time Jin is able to escape, and and really by the end of the Jetta sequence, how much this really made Imperial occupation uh, feel very real. You know, seeing seeing a Imperial labor colony. You know, just as as the title of, of whatever this planet is, um, it felt much more real. Like, and then just a brief moment with a uh, casting in the very beginning. Uh, with all of the uh, 
all the stormtroopers, you know, asking for identifications down the the bustling hallways and stuff. It just it really felt like this grounds the original trilogy even more where we fully understand this conflict by by the time we get there. Yeah, there's there is a sense of hopelessness that this film starts out with. I think it's also beautifully built upon in Solo. I think this new canon is really trying to hammer home just how much the Empire sucked. Like a lot of the books are dealing with this as well. Just the the way Imperial occupation just like sucked the soul out of everyone that was under it. And just that's in like, you know, the color palette, the just the the set design feels just wet and dirty and grimy. Just those the actors look cold. It's just everything about it is just showing us kind of a dead world where everyone looks half starved like all these guys they look they look hungry it's just there's something about like every layer just the, the cinematography the set design the acting just gives us a world where everyone just feels so desperate and that's what i really think this film is feel, feel, feels like kind of the the rebirth of hope which is so beautiful leading into a new hope uh just kind of the rebirth of hope in a hopeless galaxy even in the first act where I think the characterization, the story, just the, the plot pieces don't entirely work. That tone and and the, the theme that is, you know, given through that tone, I think is always there. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, obviously, they're, they're very upfront about the fact that this is kind of the birth of the hope um, that, that we're able to see in A New Hope. Uh, and again, you know, by the time this movie ends, <laughs> like I'm so tempted to just put the disc for A New Hope in, despite having seen it like four times this year, probably. Um, just because of how much it really feels like the movie was able to take us from this point of just despair and hopelessness and, you know, the world just looks gross. The Empire's hold is so strong, there's no real use. You know, you have her line where, you know, you can't see the flags if your head's turned down. Yeah. To seeing a new hope, like this, the the chances in that feel real now, and and it feels like the fact that they feel real is a is a victory now. You know, we kind of introduced that introduced that idea as the, at the very beginning of a new hope. So we really don't know what it took other than just you know a short paragraph and a crawl. But here, having like having this give life to that first paragraph is just. It it may it means so much. And what's so cool about that is that not only is the imperial occupation so just soul suckingly bad, the the rebellion itself has lost its hope. They've kind of given up on their very ideals. You know, they've they've become very deeply morally compromised. Like you have Saw is like an extreme, but even the rebellion itself feels like it's just caught in a the caught in this quagmire of just where they're no longer fighting for ideals they're just fighting for survival and when you're kind of and in that kind of guerrilla warfare there are so many moral compromises and just choices you have to make just to survive that don't that don't in any way line up with the supposed ideals of the rebellion against the empire and eventually you kind of come to a point where you're you even question just what is the rebellion even doing you know when they they take a daughter and say, we're going to save your father, so show, show us where he is. And they're going to get her to lead them to her father so they can kill him. It's like, this, it's so gross. And what we have over the course of the film is with like the characters of Cassian, who has been in the fight since, you know, since childhood. 
And he's fully committed to the rebellion, but he's just so far gone and to the point where he's almost in danger of losing his soul. And we're, and then you have Jin, who has was once part of the rebellion, but kind of gave up and is now kind of hopeless. And you have these characters where, where Cassian has to give her the drive. Well, Cassian and obviously the, the testimony of her father give her the drive to believe in something again. And she also has to turn around to Cassian and kind of remind him of why he's even fighting. And you know, where it's not just for yourself, you can't, you can't, you can't kill the people like this and pretend that you're better than the Empire. You kind of have these two characters who have to kind of come together and create a, a new ideal for the rebellion to rise up to, to where they can now. It's like the, the first half of the film feels like the rebellion is fighting the Cold War, and then by the end we're at World War II. You know, we start with this war that is this conflict that is just so muddled in moral and ethical. Uh, compromises till we finally till we can move towards the end to where we have we know who we are we are the good guys we know those guys are the bad guys and it's just this it's a i think it's a really seamless progression where it moves through that till finally by the end like we know who we are we know what we're about and we will no longer be bogged down by these these moral failings and that transitions so well into the uh the tone of the original trilogy you know yeah. um which was very much modeled after kind of this world war ii kind of ideals um and so i think it, it does a good job of kind of not recontextualizing the original trilogy but maybe in a way you know, at least providing uh, a level of history behind it to where again all of these victories and and this very clear uh black and white lines feel more meaningful now because of what it took to get there yeah and if luke hadn't been successful the rest of the rebellion would probably turned into a bunch of saw guerreras like he kind of confirmed the righteousness that they were now in. Yeah, and then yeah, I think one of the big things that this movie did for me was kind of explore that gray area in terms of war that that Star Wars never, you know, probably intentionally never really has touched. Uh, although I guess you could say they did that in a, a big way with the Clone Wars. Um, but here, at least in terms of just tactics, you know, beyond just what we're fighting for, just the, the way it's fought here, like you said... Uh, the opening scene with Cassian just willing to shoot the guy in the back, um, lying to Jin about the purpose of fighting her father. Uh, and this, you know, this was always one of the things that I felt was strongest about the movie. But it is even more so having, you know, I think uh, during during the scene where uh, Jin is being uh, interrogated by Mon Mothma and by Cassian, I've got that scene of Saw Gerrera projecting himself and calling out Mon Mothma on Yavin 4 um, from Rebels. And so, you know, having, having like hearing Mon Mothma call him an extremist um, and, and thinking about her speech she gives him only to have this other guy who operates directly under her to tell him, to tell Cassie, you know, forget everything you heard in here. Your mission is kill him if you see it. Like, yeah, they, they kind of went out of their way to maintain her purity. Yeah. And so it just, it, being a continuation, having having this movie act as a continuation for Rebels, I think even amplifies what I thought was already its its stronger element. And then, of course, you know this isn't just something that they have at the very beginning. Uh, this is kind of a theme that you see running all the way through. Like you said, you do see a very clear and discernible progression uh, in the way we're meant to perceive the way the war should be fought and the way it's being fought and everything from beginning to end. So yeah, moving to the actors, like the, there's no, there's, it's no secret that the characters aren't 
aren't as like dynamic and strong as they are in in all the other Star Wars films. And part of that's intentional. I think this is a something of an ensemble war film. It it, it rides the line because Jin is very clearly the protagonist in the beginning, and you have Cassian, and it seems like she might be being set up to be kind of the classical Star Wars protagonist. But as it moves along, it 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 very much turns into an ensemble where it like towards the climax, it seems like everybody's getting equal time. Like you know, or, or you know, five five to eight. Uh, kind of heroes are all kind of getting equal time. Um, so it, I think the, the line between, uh, you know, a, a purely ensemble war film and, you know, the, the hero-led story of the of the original Star Wars is a little muddled. However, I do think one thing that doesn't change throughout is the uh, the performances. And I think Felicity Jones is really good. And and she, like, the, for the first half of the film, it's kind of hard to get a read on her because she doesn't have a lot. And that's very intentional. She's very internal. She's, you know, trying to keep a lid on everything because she has been burned so many times. But then I think it, it starts to crack when she sees um, Saw. And you have that, that line you quoted, you know, where she says, it's not a problem if you don't look up. And you see, like, she's almost breaking underneath, like she doesn't even truly believe it herself. And then when she sees her father kind of just... Who I guess, I guess you know, to the best of her knowledge, is kind of a traitor working for the enemy now. Was actually this entire time working, you know, to try and free the galaxy, and do and not only doing that, but doing it inspired by her, out of his love for her, trying to sacrifice his life for this greater good, and just her acting where she's just watching that hologram is like just devastating, and it's beautifully um, it's like. Her internal world is being turned upside down while the while the uh, Death Star is being tested on Jedi, and like while she's like crumbling, the the whole like the sky is being turned upside down. Literally, you know, there's a problem with the horizon. There is no horizon. It's like it's like I think um, Edwards has a lot of issues with you know combining his gorgeous uh, visuals with his themes, but th- that was like a perfect thing where you have the character what is happening internally to the character is beautifully plastered on the horizon with the uh, destruction of Jeddah. And kind of from then on, we know what we're about. She has her purpose. Yeah. I think she was really great in the role that that's the moment where I'm like, okay, I, you know, I, there's, there's a character here now that I can identify. Um, and the way she breaks in that scene, I think is, is really strong. And, uh, I think there's a lot of little moments that I see uh, both from her and from um, Diego Luna where it's it's just little subtle moments that I think make movie characters stop feeling like characters and just start feeling like like people. Uh, subtle things that you'd almost never even really notice. Like there's a there's a moment uh, after the escape from Jeddah where you know she's telling him about the plans that she was told of, and and Cassian asks, you know, do you have it? Do you have the message? And you almost have a moment where her eyes kind of get big. She realizes no. And like, you know, it's, it's that moment that she's realizing everything there, everything Cassian has, everything the rebellion has, is just going to be my word. And her lips kind of quiver and she, her voice starts shaking. Like, no, it all, it all happened so fast. And, uh, it just feels like such a human moment. Yeah. And, and if she can't do it, that means like, if she can't do that, it means her father's entire life work just failed. Yeah. And so this, you know, she's not like breaking down into tears. She's not screaming. It's just, it's this moment that we probably all have experienced just probably to a much lesser extent of just realizing that all of this, this hope or this purpose that we had had is like slipping because of just a mistake that we made. Um, and the way she conveys that I just, I thought is really, really, uh, really great. 
And I definitely sympathize with the people who who feel they can't connect to the characters, especially the first half, because you look at the character of the Jin and Cassian, and both of them are in, are just completely clamped down on their internal life for the first half of the film. And you know, Jin is is you know just trying to you know keep looking down, trying to struggle through the day. She she won't let anything on. You know, she's trying to play this hardened. A cynical person and you know, she doesn't break until she sees her father and for Cassian he doesn't even break until after uh, Edu where you know he finally has that argument with Jin it's like the characters are are very much trying are trying to be as un you know, charismatic and unobtrusive as or intrusive as possible and so I do I do if you're if you're going to this film expecting you know classical Star Wars characters who are you know not terribly deep but but more boisterous and with a, you know a big personality that we can immediately latch onto, these are very different characters at their core. You know, whether or not you think they were perfectly executed in the script level, it's just they are fundamentally different types of characters. It's a, it's a fundamentally like different genre of a performance and writing that comes into who these people are than what you would normally expect in a Star Wars film. Yeah, one of the things that I've always disagreed with, and you know, made sure to disagree with, even whenever I was kind of like you know on the attack with this film was was whenever it was criticized for not being the classical Star Wars adventure. Um, I have always, you know, wanted Star Wars to cover as many genres as it felt like it wanted to. And so when this went from more gritty war film with with the less charismatic leads and more of just, you know, the, the everyday soldiers, um, I really like that about it. Uh, I think the... For me, you know, I, I like the characters. I, I would not go so far as to, to criticize them to the same extent that a lot of the people who who dislike this movie do. Um, but I think that with how closed off they are at the beginning, I think we should have seen more of them, at least Jin, um, earlier on before being introduced to them as this, as this closed off person. It kind of reminded me, um, I, I first thought about this idea with Jin during... Um, when we were going through Rebels, where it may have been, I think it was actually you who said everything interesting about um, Sabine was in her past, you know, with with the the Imperial stuff and and then with the weapons designs. Uh, and I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't you know hold that to the exact same uh, extent against Jin, but it did feel kind of in a way similar. Where you know she has this argument with Saw, where you know she was this this great warrior, she abandoned at sixteen. She's she fought in the more extremist side with Saw. Like you have all of this interesting stuff, and you know trying to lay low, being the daughter of like a, the weapons expert for the Empire. You have all of this interesting stuff, and it's kind of just relayed to us um, in exposition. Yeah, I I, I feel like her Charles the Dark Saber moment is with when she sees that hologram from her father. But before that, yeah. She is kind of just people telling us about her. Yeah, and so I think that I would never have needed that moment to get, to, you know, to latch on to her if from the get-go I already kind of understood why she is the way she is. Not that everything, not that, you know, we need extensive amounts of scenes. Uh, maybe even just a singular scene of her fighting with Saw. It's cool you say that because I was, uh, as I was watching, I was thinking and writing my notes, thinking about how I would fix this first act. I think... Two things that were that real we really needed was a scene of her between her as a child and her as, as an adult, you know, because we have to have because her as a child she has like two lines we don't know who she is so you have to have who she was how that contrasts with the cold cynical person she is now and how that will contrast with the, with the more hopeful person she is by the end and we also needed uh saw we needed a scene of saw 
before we meet him. Because like we, we meet him, he's this broken down wreck and like, like Jin almost starts crying just looking at how pathetic he is now. That for that to have an impact, we need to see who he was in his prime fighting the Empire, you know, to see how far hope has broken down and you know how, how just how pathetic the rebellion now is. Like there has to be a contrast. It feels like there should be a contrast from from who Jin is, who he and, and who Saw is to where they are now, so that we can build up out of that again. Because if we just start there, it's just we don't it's, you don't feel it. Yeah, and one of the things I was thinking could could be done maybe would be you know because he mentions you know people were growing suspicious they were starting to figure it out you know with her who her father is and and maybe you know have that be something he struggles with and again it doesn't have to be extensive it could just be you know a 10-15 minute sequence um, or something maybe not even that long um, but have kind of set that set that up as something he's kind of aware of at the beginning. And then one of the, one of the things that doesn't really work with me work for me with this character here is, you know, with his last line of dialogue where he's like, "I shall run no longer," that that really falls flat to me because we're just now being introduced to him and nothing described like none of the descriptors we've had imply someone who's been running from his problems. He's always been described as this yeah. this guy who's taken the fight to them on his own terms, uh, for better or for worse. And so I I almost think if if maybe. You know the the scene, this flashback scene could have ended with them being forced to retreat from the empire, and it you know him not going back to save Jin, um, not not to leave her, to, not intentionally leaving her to die, but kind of be like she's in a place that'll she should be fine, they should pass, and this is my out, this is my way of getting rid of her while also fleeing, and then you have this last line, it's like you know I, I'm done running when things get bad. Yeah. Yeah, because like as a character, he's a really cool concept. You know, the the extremist that he, that is too extreme for the rebellion, kind of a, basically a terrorist, and you know, trying to have the two wings of the rebellion work together, and then obviously the the broken down man who is once a proud warrior. Like that's all. There's a lot there. It just doesn't work because there's no contrast with his character. We meet him and he dies, and he's the same throughout the entire thing. It's like, you kind of just wonder, like, what entirely was his deal? Like, I can now piece, having seen the Clone Wars and Rebels, I can piece together a beautiful, tragic arc for Saul, but just watching this movie, you don't really feel a lot for him. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things we were talking about in our Revenge of the Sith episode, though, is is one of the pros about Star Wars being a growing universe is that a character who really didn't work for me on any level on first viewing is now actually a character and I feel something when I see him die now. Uh, and so taken in isolation, I think he's a problem. Um, but viewing this whole sequence, viewing Act 1 as kind of a a, a merging of Rogue 1's plot with, with where Rebels last left off, I think he works a lot better for me now. Uh, and then continuing the idea of looking at this now in 2018 with the perspective we have on the universe, the way the Death Star is revealed is so cool to me. First of all, you know, for his, you know, slip-ups with his characters sometimes, Gareth Edwards is a visual genius. Uh, and yes. this opening, the shot where we see probably the most beautifully looking and beautifully detailed Star Destroyer ever kind of coming out of this shadow. And we already know how huge those are. And when the, the camera pans over and we see, like, the chronological unveiling of the Death Star... And you hear the dun, 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 dun. Like, it just, it feels like the mystery that we've been following through Rebels is finally answered. And, you know, trying to sit and watch it as, as someone, you know, who 
who doesn't know like what is this that they keep teasing that Saul's been worried about uh seeing it introduced is just amazing and you know obviously all of the shots of it from a new hope are iconic and deservedly so but this is the best the death star has, has ever looked yeah there are like not enough words in the english language to describe just how beautiful this movie is every shot is you know giving us this incredible sense of scale and place you know it, we are we always know just like exactly how big our characters are in relation to everything else and it's just his eye for compositions is unmatched in all of star wars and we've had a lot of great you know, we've had george lucas in this franchise and then you know a lot of fantastic visual storytellers there's just something about how he frames a shot that is just absolutely gorgeous i think about a couple of my favorites uh are that shot uh the shot uh, just the way the uh the first test of the death star and Jedi is, is filmed where the ground rising up like a tidal wave and they're flying underneath it's like jaws closing down it's just i don't know how do you even get that concept into your head much less you know give that design to artists and visual effects to, to come up with this this is just stunning images that he's able to do in every sequence um just yeah yeah he he might not be able to tell a story but you give me, you, know, you give his, you know, you give uh, uh, the story from, you know, Tony Gilroy's story to him, and you join them together. They come up with something just absolutely astonishing. Yeah, and, and it's even just little things like the the approach to Jetta, where we're we're flying over these these statues that are, you know, being covered and forgotten by all this sand. Um, and it just the way he uh, he visualizes space and perspective, like with the Death Star. Um, you know, like if, where you're kind of positioning the camera where it almost looks like it's kind of upside down hanging over this planet. Yeah, the way it rises into the atmosphere. It's from the planetary perspective. Yeah, it looks like a moon now. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, talking about the Death Star, we might as well talk about its director, uh, director Krennic, who I refer to as, as very much my favorite character of this film. I wouldn't go there, but he is a lot of fun. I, for me, I'm able to not emotionally latch on. Just I like pin him, pin who he is as a character early on, and just watch him act the crap out of like every scene he's in. Just pathetic weasel. It's weird because in a lot of ways that's accurate, but I think there's a lot of other aspects about him where he is in a way a pathetic weasel but at the same time he like he gets force choked by vader and like smiles about it and is like huh, i'm not dead and i'm still a director like fine by me like <laughs> there's something super just odd about him but even, you know from the this the prologue of this film i was like this is a character i already like like i'm, I'm glad that he is an addition to the franchise you know where he's, you know he's got this friendly facade uh with them at first with uh galen you know, and he, he hears Galen tells him his wife is dead. He's like, oh, my condolences. Search the house. And then my favorite line from the beginning, when, when his wife comes back, it's, you know, oh, it's Lyra back from the dead. It's a miracle. <laughs> just every, the way he delivers every single line, the fact that he feels like he's just, he's this guy who wants so hard to be able to play with the big kids, but just can't for some reason. Uh, his bickering with, uh, Tarkin <laughs> might be my favorite uh, outside of of the last act and everything on Scarif. Everything beforehand, I think his just his back and forth with Tarkin is like my favorite stuff in the movie. Yeah, it's like he he 
almost has what it takes. So he has the intelligence and the vision and even some of the ruthlessness, but there's just something about it where Tarkin is just always one step ahead of him. Like you almost feel bad for because like he does he does deserve the recognition for this, and Tarkin is taking away from him. But it, it's just it's so well played between the two. And sure, Tarkin doesn't look perfect. Okay, like but there is a character there. There's a great performance there, and the character you know has a, a part in the in the plot. And like as an idea, I think it's fantastic. I think that most of the execution is really good. Just the voice is good. I think he has a great just place in the story. Yeah, CGI. Like the CGI is fantastic, but you can still tell uh, what it is for a couple scenes. So, like, I don't have a huge problem with that. But how I, you know, I can see the flaws though. But I'm glad he's there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think watching it on Blu-ray, he really does look fantastic. You know, most of these films and like the CGI on them are now designed to be looked at under the scrutiny of CGI or, or uh, of um, of high definition. Uh, and so on, on my Blu-ray disc, he looks pretty fantastic. Yeah, um, it's not Tron Legacy. Yeah, or the Scorpion so, King. <laughs> you know, we've we've seen and and tolerated much worse. Uh, so yeah, honestly, after I was able to see him, like, oh, he's CGI, okay, and you know, I I kind of dealt with it right then and there, and it, it never at all. Uh, I I almost forget about it eventually because I'm just so much more sucked into this like this dynamic they're able to create with Krennic and um and Tarkin from the very opening scene. You automatically know the like what these two guys think about each other, and just their dialogue back and forth. When when uh, Krennic says, "You know, I, I had hoped the Emperor and Lord Vader would have been here for this," and Tarkin says, "And yet I thought it prudent to spare you the embarrassment." Um, <laughs> and you know, like you said, you were saying earlier, you kind of feel sorry for him. In a way, you really do because you can't even say that he's just allowing himself to get stepped on. You know, he, he shouts at his superior Tarkin right there. You know, we stand amidst my achievement, not yours. And he goes so far as to go to Vader and tattle on Tarkin. Um, so he's he's absolutely taking all of these steps. But for just just for some reason, there's there's just something missing. I think it's because he, he wears his ambition on his sleeve. Like Tarkin is ambitious, but he acts like he already rules the world. Krennic behaves like a guy who wants to rule the world, but is still on the bottom. And w- w- whenever he gets a step up, he wants to gloat about it. Whereas Tarkin is just like, okay, I got it. Oh, now, now next now next objective. Krennic plays his need for power, you know, far more on his face than uh, Tarkin does. So Tarkin, like Tarkin doesn't need to win every victory. Krennic needs to win every victory he has. If Tarkin loses, he's like, All right, I'm already planning the ne- for the next step in your downfall kind of thing. Yeah, and I think you can definitely see that in the way the two interact with Vader. And I think part of it probably is just a different, like, Tarkin may be in a political position uh, in which he can kind of command Vader, but when you see the two interact together and, you know, he's like, Lord Vader, release him now. Uh, and yet we see credit kind of like, as Vader describing, you know, groveling at his feet. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's definitely a difference of character, but I, I, I've really always enjoyed like the evil bureaucrats of Star Wars. Um, Tarkin <laughs> yeah. is a big favorite of mine and, and Krennic from here. And, you know, even Hux, especially within The Force Awakens, I just, I love these kinds of villains. Um, and, you know, I think Krennic might be my favorite of them. Yeah, he's great. Um, I want to talk a bit about some of the other cast members. Um, like this is, I, we have some disagreement here. For me, Krennic, Jin, and Cassian are kind of the main characters of the story. And all the others are kind of, like, they're there, 
and like you like we argued about this a long time uh we after after our rebels recording like I, for me i think all these other characters just have tiny bits and they serve their purpose and they're like beautifully portrayed by these actors and like for, like the whole, the whole philosophy I, I see in this film, the way it relates to his characters, it feels like the characters are all just kind of pieces that come and go, building to the greater whole of a of a, a reborn rebellion. Like it, it, this feels like much more like a war film and how it treats all the rest of the characters and how just like they, this isn't about them. It, the film very much seems to be like it's not about them. You know, they come they come in, they have their who they are. They they may even have an arc. But in the end, it's about the whole, and it's about what they did to bring that whole about. So you know, be, whether it's uh, Chirrut Imway and his his connection to the Force, or just that one dude that got shot on Scarif, it feels like they all the film kind of gives all of them sort of an equal importance, just building to a greater whole. You'll be able, I'll let you detail your problems with the characters later. But for me, I I love all these side characters. I think like. I'm so happy they got uh, Donnie Yen. I think he's he's got a great sense of humor, a wonderful sense of mysticism. I, and I love the concept of a Force-sensitive guy who's, who's probably not terribly strong with Force, but has this connection to where he sees, he senses the uh, the kyber crystal on Jin, which I thought is just beautiful, kind of a little bit of lore. And somehow he gets the sense of the Force that he should follow them and protect them, and he kind of joins in, and his, his grumpy old, old friend, who's also very funny, uh, Baze, uh, kind of just he gets dragged along. Then we have um, uh, Bodhi, who I think Riz Ahmed is giving a phenomenal little performance in this film. Like he's just like this cowering, terrified little puppy. Just throughout, he, and he doesn't change out of that terrified little puppy through the entire film. He's still just as terrified by the end, but he was able to act, and it, it's just it's beautiful. I think um, just seeing like the way Schrute's belief slowly wears off on Bayes and. The way Be- uh, Bodhi is able to just grow that tiny bit that he has to to become something better through the influence of uh, Galen and oh G- Galen uh, Mads Mikkelsen he has he has like three scenes and that that scene of the recording is like is like that reminds me of that monologue in, uh, of uh, his as uh, Caecilius in Doctor Strange where it's just him detailing lots and lots of ex- exposition. But he is able to make you cry, cry through his, the way he puts so much character and belief behind the exposition. It's he's a fantastic actor. Yeah, he he's amazing. If, if you're only um, if you've only seen him from this and Doctor Strange, it, I would I would. There's a lot of re- other material I'd recommend, especially him as Hannibal in that series. I I think of him before I think of Anthony Hopkins. Now <laughs> he's giving a phenomenal performance. Uh, but, so all of my problems with the characters here, none of them have anything to do with acting. I think everybody uh, is great. And I did come to like Chirrut more on this. Not, I never ever like disliked anyone. It was more of just my criticisms were less at the characters and more at like the storyteller in in how he prioritized, like, prioritized time, um, you know, how long to spend with who. Uh, but I, yeah, with Donnie Yen, he's just so likely. And I think the moment that it's, like okay this right here this is whenever i like you and it'll i'll probably stay liking you for the rest and it's right in his opening scene where you know she asks how he knew he had a kyber crystal and he's like for that it'll cost you and he just kind of smiles he's like rocking back and forth and Mm -hmm. uh, um you know his his joke about being blind um (laughs) 
he he's giving such a like a fun likable and like very noble and you know you can tell that his character is just full of all different kinds of wisdom and he's bringing his martial arts skill that fight scene is incredible where he fights off the stormtroopers just beautifully shot in wide takes and i don't know how you go through all that choreography without looking he's he goes through this incredibly complex choreography while selling that he's still blind and it's really and good. quipping and you know is that your foot yeah i really like him and i i agree with riz on that as bodhi that that scene where he's first presented to saw and he's like they uh they didn't capture me i came i am a defector i did it by like and he's like defending himself yeah you you believe he's a guy who is gonna die if he says the wrong word yeah and it it feels so real um he like you said it feels like he knows he's got a gun to the back of his head and uh he is acting his heart out there and then even the like the quieter moments like in the the final act when he knows what has to be done and that last look we get from him uh or you know whenever he tells uh Jin, you know he that he knew her father and that he's there because he told him that you know this could be a way he finds redemption you know there's not a lot of scenes there but just his acting sells me on on what yeah. i need to know um i think i think my problem does lie on that line that you had mentioned earlier where it's it feels like it's riding a very thin line between ensemble and more classic like classic leads and i I just i wish that they had definitively decided on one or the other um i think that because i do not end up even after you know the story picks up and you know the acting between diego luna who i also just real quick just to talk about um Cassian I love him as a character and I think there are some moments from him that are amazing whenever he shoots the guy in the back there's like a five second like sequence where you like see the thought process of everything that a guy Mm. who would have done that would go through where it's like remorse regret acceptance and move on like it's it's kind of an amazing little moment as an actor and his argument with uh with Jin when he gets in her face and he's like, she's trying to take this high road righteous route and he gets up to her and he starts challenging her. He's like, I've been in this since I was six years old. And it's just the way he sells. It just, it feels, again, it feels very real. What's crazy about that argument is that he wins that argument despite being in the wrong. Like, I love the, the weird moral complexity they have between him and Jane where like both of them have to somehow force the other to change their way to become what they should be just the other argument just two fantastic actors and so much emotion after just you know seeing her father die and him having to make the choice to you know take the honorable road and not murder her in front of him or him in front of her but then uh, moving forward i love that we are given this broken morally compromised rebellion because like i think cassian is kind of a microcosm of the entire rebellion to where you know in the end after after the um the rebellion says they've been given the information. They decide to not act, and he gathers the troops together. And he tells her, "You know the things we've done. We have to do this. We have made. We have, you know, just we have basically sold our souls and made so many morally compromised decisions, and so we have so much sin on us that we can't just stop now. Like th- this, we have to get, do this one final effort for redemption, because otherwise, you know, we, we've." we've come we're, we're completely lost and i think he he sold he sold all of that through his character in that speech yeah so you know my like i i think casting wise and acting wise i think 
there's there's never really a moment where like oh that's that was the wrong decision i, I think the acting is fantastic all around uh but i i think you know back to what i was saying before i, I started talking about how great i think he is in the role <laughs> just stay there uh i just want to say this real quick um because i want to show that you know i i do think there are you know, however big or small they are, I do think there are some things about the movie that do hold it back from being among the very best. Um, and and for me, part of that problem is that line of of ensemble, where I because I'm not able to latch on to these characters the way I would a Luke or more recently a Ray uh, and a Finn would be, or because because I cannot latch onto them that same way. I don't get that fun of like, this is the lead. This is the guy who I or this in this case, the girl uh, that I'm seeing this movie through and I'm completely on board for this character. You know, I, I don't have that same level of attachment, uh, but because it also definitely does prioritize them as characters. I'm also not really able to get the ensemble dynamic that I, I love from ensemble movies. I'm like stuff like like guardians or something where i mean you although that's kind of a similar predicament where it's very much a lead but while at the same time having an ensemble i think with that and similar movies a a group dynamic is fully established and you get all of these different personalities playing on each other and i think part of my problem with rogue one is it's an ensemble on paper in a lot of ways but it never to me feels like an ensemble Okay, um, I don't want to. I don't want to take too much time. I, like, I get what you're saying, but I think the the fact that this film can kill off every single character that we know and still go on for another 10, 15 minutes, it it, it just says something about what the characters are, and they they are very much pieces. They come in, they they sing their hearts out, they make us cry, they die, we move on, and the hope grows. So. I, I I don't I don't even disagree with anything you're saying. It's just for me, none of that matters because I don't I like I don't I don't I don't I don't feel that the emotion of the film as a whole is predicated on the characters. And I and I for me, when we cut to those characters and they have their moment, I'm like yes, awesome moment, and we're next we're on to the next character. I'm like yes, awesome moment. It's just it yeah I it doesn't it doesn't affect me that way at all. And I, but I do understand what you're saying. Yeah, it, it's you know I I very much understand them as as characters, and that's one of the things I love about the final act. You know that speech about you know we'll do what we can and we'll get you there. Like we're this mission is a bunch of smaller missions, and we all have to focus on those. I love that, and that everyone's there to just do their individual part, and it's about the whole, um, not just the individuals. Like yeah, the the last mo- uh, moments of the movie do continue on with the cast set. I think part of that comes from just where we're going, and it's it's not writing off of nostalgia. It's very much being a continuation of its themes before. But you, I mean, we're all we're hopping on board the Tanta Five, and you know that's all awesome. And mm-hmm. Star Wars fans, we think it's super cool. I, I think my issue is that you know we have an entire film before that, and you know I don't need. I'm glad that it's taking a more gritty approach, but. I, I think that if if you aren't going to have these fully developed leads and you are going to be more of an ensemble and you're going to focus more on the, the pieces put together, uh, I just I like seeing the way a dynamic would interact. And I feel like there are kind of isolated interactions. And it's not horrible and it's certainly not movie-breaking. But it does feel like, you know, Bodhi only ever speaks to Jin and Jin speaks to Cassian and on occasion... Um, 
Chirrut and and then Chirrut and Bayes are kind of just they're two and you know the, obviously these dynamics are established beforehand so it makes sense that they kind of fall in there but by the end of it when you have you know Bayes giving lines like you know we're with you little sister I think that would have meant more for me just if we saw them grow into a, a group into Rogue One um, because even when we had opportunities to bond them through conflict like on Edu it's still just Bayes and Shurit up on a on a rock and Jin and Cassian down in the you know. But even so. then, like, you say growing into Rogue One, I kind of think the beauty of Rogue One is that it is just a bunch of strangers who have decided we got we have to fight to the death because yeah, we I believe in this cause. I don't think that's that's suddenly not accomplished simply because we had a a better established dynamic. Because really, this is still this is still coming off of the off of having only met a day earlier. So even if we stab, like established a, a real dynamic that's enjoyable to watch, we've got these different personalities interacting with each other, it's one day later and we're going on a mission to Scarif. So it's still a, just a group of strangers going on a mission. It's just, I, I care a little bit more, you know, if I, if I care about them as characters and their relationships with each other that they've built over the course of this. Uh, like I said, it's not movie-breaking. I just, it... It doesn't feel like it ha- it's exhibits the strengths that an ensemble should. All right. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I'll accept it. <laughs> and now moving into the climax, I might make myself cry here. I'm, there is something truly incredible that this film does. You know, I have watched a lot of war films, but this movie made me think about war and the courage of an individual soldier more than in a different way than I've ever seen before. You know, with the, the glut of war films, of incredible war films we've ha- we have, that's a, that's astonishing. And the fact that it's a, it's a Star Wars movie, <laughs> just even more so. Um, it goes back to that line from the opening, which t- talks about, you know, we'll take our chance, and the next and the next until we win, or the chances are spent. And I, that feels like it encapsulates the experience of the soldier on the ground like the guy who has to run at to take that hill like he doesn't know why he might die on the way and he has to he has to keep getting up and risking his life to do it for you know the the general's grander plan which we have here is these all these different characters who have to go to this place and there are a hundred steps along that they have to each one has to fulfill their own step or else the whole thing fails but you, but while you're doing, it, you don't know if that guy down the line is also doing his part. Like, if you you might jump up and be shot and killed, and it could be all for nothing because the guy over there didn't even do his thing. And it's it's I don't the editing in this climax is so beautiful for the way it sets up all of the tiny little setups and payoffs where each character is given their little piece to do, and it's constantly cutting back, showing us them doing their pieces. And the way it kind of gives us victory, victory, it's kind of a slow build of victories, and they're losing again. Then the rebellion comes, it's kind of some more victories, and they start losing again. It's, it's this beautiful rise and fall. And there's this one moment that really hammered that theme home for me is when, when uh, Bodhi is calling on the radio. To, I, you know, I can't send the signal. You need someone has to go out and turn the switch. And the guy jumps up. I, I got it. He jumps up and he's dead. He's shot and killed. And then. Uh, Chirrut gets up and does his beautiful little, you know, the forces with me, I'm with the force, the force with me walk and does it. But he's like that guy who did, who, who jumped up and was willing to go pull that switch. 
he deserves his hero moment. You know, he deserves that slow motion shot that Chirrut gets. It's, and I, I, the, I love that the film recognized that, but also recognized that not everyone gets that. And just the way that the whole thing is built up on, you know, uh, you have Cassian and Jin going inside, and the rest of them kind of have to fan out and then start shooting. But I think the film really lets get, tells you that, like, once you start shooting, you have, like, an hour before every one of you is dead. <laughs> And like they all, they all know it, and you have to start shooting to cause not even not even to take an objective, but merely to cause a distraction, in the hopes that maybe these two other people can go up that tower and do another impossible thing. But if you don't do it, they definitely can't do it. And even if you do, do if if you do it, they probably won't even win either. It's like you have to make that choice to take an action that will one hundred percent kill you on this tiny chance that maybe someone else doing the same thing will be able to cause this domino, you know, will be able to, to make this chain to work to finally give, do the, you know, obtain the final objective, which is merely telling someone, giving someone else hope. It's it, like, I, I just, I just started crying the, like the, the second time in the theater, just realizing how each and every one of these guys choices, just how, how much courage it would take, you know, to keep making those choices that are leading you closer and closer to death for just simply so that the other person can have their chance to, to, to win. And it, it just, it just felt like the whole thing was this memorial to the common soldier and just the, the courage it would take. It would, it would take every step of the way, every chance you have to take in order to be part of this larger whole and this larger vision of the of the commanding officer. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's a huge reason why the climax of this movie, regardless of faults I have with the movie beforehand, Scarif itself, and I'll just say this, Scarif is the greatest action sequence of Star Wars, and I, I don't even feel like I have any hesitance to say that. Like, for me, uh, you've got this incredible very world war ii like battle on the fronts it it feels you know kind of like you know like the the pacific or something and then uh you know you've got dog fights in atmosphere uh and then you've got this incredible space battle happening above and some of the shots where like we pick an individual fighter and we fly over the entirety of a death star and around it just incredible and so i think it's the most visually dynamic sequence in in the history of the, the series and it's so beautiful and sometimes it, it, you know they're kind of like intentionally calling back to war films you know where they're they're rushing up from the beach and you've got the guy who's turned around and like with the you know the what you would do to the charge like that big arm wave and then you've got the reinforcements being dropped it's just so good looking and we see we see this like uh theme of sacrifice on all of these fronts where Blue Leader is barely in this, but by the end of it, I'm like a big Blue Leader fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he goes down, it it hurts. I, I love they went back to those R, like RAF haircuts and oh, mustaches, yeah. like intentionally trying to, uh, you know, date themselves in the 70s. It's it's pretty awesome. Uh, but you know, when when he goes down in his ship, it feels like it's something like we just saw this other guy, like you said, this guy who deserves his hero moment, but he's just he's down and the mission proceeds. Yeah, it's just it's such an incredible incredibly shot incredibly powerful it's it, it really is pretty much perfect to me and battles are really hard to do 
And this one has so many levels. You know, we're in the we're cutting to the tower, we're cutting to the beaches, we're cutting to the jungle, we're cutting to the fight in the atmosphere, then outside of the shield. And it makes all of that feel like the most perfect and inevitable flow you could ever have had. It, it's just it's it's as you said, it's one of the it's probably the best battle sequence in Star Wars. And I think just one of the great battles that belongs up next to Helm's Deep and, you know, other fantastic sequences yeah. like that. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, how much of that, I wonder, is, is Gilroy. Um, because we know, like, just based on trailers, there was never, you know, um, sending it to the signal. We had her running back through the beach with it, like a physical copy and, and all of this. And, and it seemed like so much of um, of these small steps are taken, like, especially with Bodhi, you know, is is trying to get the signal up. And so it seems like this may have been, you know, what Gilroy is referring to as in, you know, finding what is the ultimate theme? What is beyond just really cool visuals and and uh, an explanation for the, the exhaust port and the Death Star? What are people to walk away from this movie with? And it seems like this might have been, it was like, this is what I found. It's the everyman. It's the small steps towards the bigger victory. Um, and if that is it, like, man, to be able to pull that out in post and give what is like the strongest aspect of the entire film, you know, kudos to you. Yeah. And that, that, that could, that theme of sacrifice really quick continues back, like past, past the point where all our main characters are dead and that t- into that Darth Vader sequence. Oh man. Where you have Didn't the guys running through the ship, you know, passing the disc to each other. The, the, like, I don't know how you thought of this, but it's so brilliant. You have the guy, the door will only open so far, and instead of trying to open it for, to save himself, he passes it through, and, like, two seconds after he passes it through, he's run through with the lightsaber. It's, and, like, wow, it makes me so mad. When I was in the theater, everyone started cheering at that scene. And it's not fun. It's not cool. It's horrible and tragic. You're <laughs> seeing dozens of guys sacrifice you know giving their lives to save the rebellion people are cheering for them i i, I hate humanity we're doomed <laughs> we suck but yeah like that, that scene is amazing because of how it highlights sacrifice not how cool vader is you yeah. psychopaths yeah. vader's awesome and and i love that they're able to make him look completely threatening and this is i mean this is what we were talking about in rebels they were able to accomplish there where He's still Vader from a new... He's not, like, doing backflips and stuff and then kind of, like, poking at Obi-Wan in A New Hope. He's still very much confined to this, like, slow, lumbering walk and and just holding out the lights with one arm. But, man, it's so haunting. And, and you know, like, the Vader fan is like, oh, yeah, they just gave me, like, arguably the coolest Vader scene ever. But in the moment, like, yeah, it's it's so... It is really tragic, and it's it's showing... It's continuing that theme of... Of this guy, you know, at this point, my mission is to hold my arm out and get this disc there. Um, yeah, incredible sequence. So I think we've, you know, this, this is probably a lot more we can talk about. But I think we've we've kind of covered everything. So uh, moving towards the uh, end of the discussion, um, as we do with Revenge of the Sith, I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about the soundtrack. However, I may have forgotten to actually listen to, to the soundtrack over the last week, uh, and for you know, and it seems that uh, James actually did his homework. So, uh, what are your thoughts on the score, and what are a couple uh, standout tracks for you? So, I didn't actually end up writing them down, which I realize now is a mistake because I can't exactly <laughs> recommend individual tracks. Although I do believe one of them is just called Imperial Suite or or Krennic Suite or something like that. Uh, probably my favorite. It's it's like this whole new imperial march almost it doesn't feel like it's trying to replace it but just the style of it feels 
like tonally like it stands right beside it um and in another universe it's you know in some sort of alternate reality it's just as iconic and popular as the imperial march uh it's awesome um and then the the overture you know that plays whenever the the title is revealed as well as i i think this theme runs throughout the whole film but you really first hear it when they're on their craft first kind of landing in Jeddah, um Jin and cassian uh it's just this sound there's like this sense of wonder and discovery of this old ancient civilization with these statues that are just be becoming buried in sand it's it's amazing what giacchino was able to do in this limited time is really amazing and um i think that it could have really tried to just coast entirely off of nostalgia and he would have almost been justified to do so be like hey my hands were tied i would have come up with something great but but instead, he, he came up with some very unique tracks, uh, and it's definitely worth listening to. I think those tracks would be The Imperial Suite, He's Here For Us, and uh, Jetta Arrival. Yes, yes, those are it. Um, yeah, I don't remember any specific tracks with themes, but I do remember l- liking the music a lot while watching for what it's worth. Um, so moving on, I guess we've kind of, we've kind of given our overall thoughts. Uh, let's move, what are your rankings now for all the Star Wars films we've covered? Okay, so I would go number one would be um, A New Hope. Number two would be The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, number three would be Revenge of the Sith. Number four would be Rogue One. And number five would be Return of the Jedi. There's two more. Two more. There are two more. Uh, <laughs> n- number six would be... And I think I've changed... I don't think we've covered this since I changed my mind, but I have now... I've come around to what seems to be the general consensus. Um, I have a, I have more fun. Maybe I was just in denial because, like, <laughs> Attack of the Clones is one of the earliest memories I have in the theater. Uh, but I would put number six as the Phantom Menace and number seven as Attack of the Clones. Yay. Welcome to the right side of history. <laughs> um, so for my ranking, it's very, very similar to yours. It would be A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and I would put Rogue One next, actually, just because of how beautiful this ending is. Uh, then it would be... Uh, uh, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, The Phantom Menace, and Attack of the Clones. Um, so just one difference for us. Um, going into this film's initial reception, um, it was a huge box office success. It grossed $532 million domestically, $523 million uh, in the foreign markets, and for a grand total of $1,056,000,000. It, it was pretty well received by both critics and audiences. Uh, the, like It didn't like the love wasn't nearly as rapturous as it was for like the, the force awakens the way that was right out of the gate um it got mostly good reviews but there were, there were a lot of criticisms as well you know regarding the characters but everyone most people just seemed to enjoy, like it uh it was nominated for two academy awards best visual effects and best sound mixing but uh lost to the jungle book and hacksaw ridge respectively uh the jungle book definitely looks good but i, I think rogue one's effects are much more seamless and just perfect whenever the hammerhead destroys the star destroyer and it collides with the other and you see the individual bits of metal ripped up that's one of the most jaw-dropping moments of visual effects just in recent memory yeah that the destruction of jetta just the landscapes like yeah the jungle book is revolutionary but i think just as far as just the, the amount of effects in this film and how seamless they are i think it's probably deserved it the legacy of this film is rather complicated like there's a the group that viciously hates everything disney's made still rallies around this film for some reason uh which it strikes me as a little i guess just because it's it's 
completely subservient to the original trilogy so they they can still accept it or something uh but yes the, like the group that hates all the other disney films still like this overall like people still have complaints uh i know a couple of people like even friends who have been on this podcast who like really dislike it and a lot of critics seem to dismiss it it's kind of a weird legacy like some people like raise it up as one of the greatest Star Wars. Some other people like, yes, not any good. Oh, the general consensus seems to be somewhere just kind of it's good. But what's so weird is you know the average. If you were to take the average score, I do not think that at all. Like that would be reflective at all of of the actual thought. It's very much who who you talk to. You know, and on, I think you know it's holding an eighty five on Rotten Tomatoes, and I, I've seen uh, some bigger uh, name, you know, not magazine, but just you know sites. Uh, really talk about how great it is along with some others, you know, kind of put it towards the lower end. But yeah, it's, I think among the like the, the hardcore Star Wars fan base, they really have taken to this film and, and have very much embraced it into into canon. All right. So that was Rogue One. Um, again, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Boutique Podcast. If you want to follow, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseBoutiquePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, so you can follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to get the name right first try this time. You and I both admin a Star Wars page called Star Wars for fans dang it <laughs> Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars that's it Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars second time one uh, day yes it'll happen it'll happen in the very last episode again we would you know we would love to have any listeners who aren't already there come over there we, we love talking about you know all of all of the aspects of Star Wars that we love you know be it series or comics or movies or any of it um and we try to have productive conversations over it. All of Star Wars minus the hate. Yes. And uh, I am also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. And I am on Twitter as Gabe A. Green. So for next week, we're doing something that actually chronologically came earlier in the timeline. It would be Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, I, it still hurts me that we didn't couldn't have done it before Rebels, but oh well. We got it in now. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to rewatching it. I only saw it the once, but I... I thoroughly enjoyed it i guess i have the outro this time uh so until next week we will see you in solo i'm one with the force and the force is with me